0: Are you feeling good, Giles? Am I feeling good?
1: Um, Yes, I am feeling good. 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 Are you feeling good? I'm feeling good, thank you. Yeah, I'm feeling good. Um, I've got a story for you that relates to our guest today because, you know, it's very well known. Hello, welcome to A Little Bit of Positive, by the way. It's the positive podcast where we try and keep you happy. We we always forget about that bit. We always forget about the hello, don't we? I always think that you're gonna do some clever little jingle at the right point anyway, and you'll Yeah, popping. I probably will. Um, you probably will, but you might not. Um, and if you don't, then we'll just segue into it beautifully. But I tell you what, I'll leave a little pause here where you can put the music. have read about somebody who might be gooder than you you know i think you're very good i think you are a good person but i'm going to tell you the story of freddie figures and for our listeners if you haven't heard the story of freddie figures please look it out and look it up because it's quite amazing um this little boy freddie was thrown away next to a trash heap in north florida and a couple found him called Nathan and Betty May. And they, they're they good people, good people of their community because they were already foster parents and had looked after a lot of kids. And when they found Freddie, they eventually ended up adopting Freddie and... He had, I'd say, even though they adopted him, he had a tough childhood and he was picked on and his friends at school, or not friends, the bullies at school called him trash boy and all the rest, so much so that his dad, Nathan, had to go and pick him up. And apparently they even bullied his dad. But um, there was a turning point for him because he was always good at fixing things and really interested in technology and IT and they had like old radios and stuff like that hanging around the house. And one day, they came across in a junk store, they came across uh, an old Macintosh computer and it cost around 17 pounds and they bought it for Freddy and he was obsessed with this old Mac, even though it didn't work. And he just spent hours playing with it, tinkering with it and trying to fix it. And he tried. Do you know how many times he tried to fix this thing, Giles? How many? 50. Wow. And eventually he got it it working, he got this computer working and then he became like the local Uh, IT whiz, and he started fixing computers for his school and then City Hall found out about him. And then he started working for £9 or $9 an hour, I don't know what it was at the time, and fixing the city, the community's um, computers. And I think they got him to take a look at some system uh, for the water supply in the city as well. And he fixed that for them, saving them hundreds of thousands of dollars, which he did for nothing. He did it because he loved it. He was obsessed. He was involved. He was interested. And he was never motive, motivated by money. It was all about just he was he was he was taken by by technology and fascinated by it. But the first thing that he invented was for his dad Nathan, because very sadly his dad got Alzheimer's and would run away from home. And the one thing he did in the middle of the night, which is mostly when he ran away from home, is he would put his shoes on. So uh, so Freddie invented this thing, this device that he could track his dad's shoes with. So he put this, he pulled apart a GPS tracker because it was way before this technology really existed in its entirety. I think it was before solid state. Um, and, or it was, it was during solid state. Is it before or after solid state? You know, all of this, I know nothing about this (laughs) solid state is pre what we are now, I think. Anyway, our listeners will tell me, I'm sorry, it's really bad that I don't know. Anyway, the technology didn't exist. So he pulled apart this thing and he put the GPS tracking device in the sole of his dad's shoe and a speaker so that he could talk to his dad. So when his dad went missing, he could speak to his dad, where are you? And his dad would say, I don't know where I am, Freddie. I'm not sure. Cause it'd always like wander off around the mm-hmm. corner. And he would then track him through this thing and go and collect him and, and bring him home. Incredible. And It's just incredible. And he would, he just, he would, he then, he's since become a very successful entrepreneur and he would never leave his dad behind. And because there was nobody to take care of his dad, he would take his dad to meetings and just say, I'm really sorry. Wow. You know, my dad's looked after me my entire life. This is the situation. He's coming with me. Just an incredible human being. Another invention was a glucometer, a glucometer. Uh, Sadly, another of their relatives died in a rural setting, died because he was diabetic and his sugar levels were through the roof. And Freddie invented this machine that could measure your glucose levels and it would then transmit your sugar levels to your doctor who would know when you were in trouble and to your medical assistants, wherever your medical assistants was. So that was the next thing that he invented. And then and then the another incredible thing he did was to ensure that um 2G uh I think 2 and 3G got to rural communities that the big telephone networks weren't interested in. So he applied for those licenses and even though they didn't the big boys didn't want those licenses, they didn't want anybody else to have them either. Mm. They just wanted to keep you know keep hold of them. So he applied for the licenses more than 200 times. Amazing
0: determination, isn't it?
1: And eventually he got the licences as well. And I think the lovely bit of this whole story is that his motto is never give up. No matter how cold the world may look, try to make a positive impact on the life of everyone you encounter. And this is a boy that was thrown on a rubbish heap.
0: Incredible. It's amazing, story. isn't
1: it? Story. He is definitely a good person. And if our guest, Simon Anholt, was writing the Good Person Index, surely you and freddie would be at the top
0: well i think freddie would that's just an an amazing story and i know there's lots of other things i mean we talked before we started recording about the the things he's done a definite future guest for a little bit of positive just sounds incredible and what an an amazing achievement he's done but yes simon Anholt's our guest today um for people don't know simon is an independent policy advisor he's advised many governments and political figures. In fact, he tells us about some of very high profile world leaders that he's had dinners with, some of them quite controversial.
1: This We shouldn't underestimate Simon, actually, in terms of his experience. Mm. 20 years working with presidents and prime ministers of 54 countries. Yeah,
0: yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, amazing and uh, amazing insights. And he's created this thing called the Good Country Index, which is a way of measuring how each country on earth contributes to the common good of humanity, and, and this is not
1: money. This is not about money, is it? This is, is not it?
0: about money. It's not about money at all. It's just about how much they put out into the world. And and, and as we talked to Simon, we realised that, yes, actually, often the countries with the rank very high on the, the Good Country Index are the ones who give the most.
1: I'm not going to spoil it. Uh, I've got the list in front of me here. It's it, Obviously, it's an ever-changing list, mm. but I've got, I've got the top 10 written down in front of me. But I'm not going to say what they are, because I think that's the intriguing part of uh of this podcast is listen and be astounded at uh at which countries are at the top of the list there will be some that you won't be surprised about that are way down at the bottom we can all <laughs> guess we can all guess which which countries they are but um number one certainly it occupied the number one spot for a long for a long time might surprise you mm.
0: yeah it's honestly, it's a fascinating book that he's written it's called the good country equation it's well worth getting um you can read more about it but obviously Simon is here to tell us all about what it is. Well, Simon, it's lovely to see you and thank you for coming on. I'd like to ask you first if you could just give us a little bit of background about where, you know, where you got to within doing the, the Good Index um, and, and and maybe explain a little bit about what the, the Good Country mm. Index is as well. Okay,
2: I'll try and give you the, the three-minute version instead of the four-hour seminar. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. So my day job is uh, is advising governments, I advise presidents and prime ministers around the world on uh, how, they can in- how their countries can engage more effectively with the international community, which is just a grand way of saying, make better use of the opportunities that are out there for countries to work together. So whether that's trade or diplomacy, or avoiding wars, or cultural relations between countries, which is so valuable um, that's the stuff that I've advised on and over over 60 countries over the last 20 years or so. And um, as I was doing this um, fairly unusual and fairly privileged job, privileged because you, you get to participate in some fascinating conversations, close up and intimate mm. with the people who run countries, um, naturally I began to form some views about what had gone wrong with the world and why things weren't working as well as they should do and why countries don't collaborate to fix things like climate change and migration and pandemics, this big mystery, <laughs> it's so obvious that if we want to fix all of these problems, we can do it relatively quickly if only countries work together and, and, and pool their, their resources. But they don't. Um, and so I was really interested in the, in the reasons why countries seem to be configured to compete instead of collaborate, because you can certainly do both. Um, and, uh, so over the years, um, some ideas started emerging and that was why I wrote this book, The Good Country Equation, because I wanted to track the course of that learning. Um, and the Good Country Index was the result of a, of, um, a discovery I made. Okay. So we're now into minute one and a half. I'd better hurry up. Um, <laughs> so you're, you're doing pretty right.
1: well. You're, you know, trying to condense 20 years of experience here into several minutes. We're, we're staying with you.
2: <laughs> Thank you for being understanding. Well, that, that, that is the problem. But, but uh, basically what I discovered was that um, the one obsession that all countries did have, they weren't so worried about the grand challenges, but that what they were obsessed with was their own images because they discovered, um, as many countries have discovered over the years, that if everybody likes you and admires you, if you're a popular and well-liked country, you just do so much better. All the tourists want to visit you, all the investors want to put their money there, everybody supports you if there's a conflict. So if you're Norway and everybody loves you. Everything is easy and everything is cheap, and you just progress. You you hardly have to do anything. If, on the other hand, you're one of those countries that's unlucky enough to be completely unknown, or relatively unknown, like I don't know Djibouti. Um, I mean, obviously it's known in its neighbourhood, but in the wider world it's not. Or if you're a country that has a bad image for whatever reason, fair or unfair. Everything is difficult and everything is expensive. So this is the obsession of government. And I measure country images. I've been doing this uh, with a big international survey uh, back since since 2005. So I decided I wanted to try and find out what's the secret? What's the recipe? Why is it that that people admire Norway more than Djibouti? What is it that Norway has or does? Because that's a really important thing to know. To cut a long story short, what I discovered was that the countries people prefer are the ones that contribute most to the world that they live in. In other words, it's nothing to do with how successful you are, how well you treat your own population, how much money you've got, the beauty of your landscape, the age of your culture. All of that is secondary. The thing that people care about most is, what do you do for the world that I live in? So the reason why people admire Norway is because they've heard of a thing called the Oslo Peace Accords. And maybe they're not even quite sure what it was all about, but it sounds like it's, a, it's peace and peace is good. And Oslo's in Norway, right? So I like, I like Norway. Mm. So I'm much more likely to trade with Norway, to go on holiday to Norway, to buy Norwegian products, to hire Norwegian people, to go and study in a Norwegian university. On the other hand, I keep on hearing that Russia in some way doesn't support the international order, that they, they sow mistrust and confusion. And so I do worry about Russia when I go to sleep at night and therefore I'm much less likely to go to Russia to buy a Russian product, to hire a Russian person. And so it moves forward. So I thought to myself, okay. so if people like countries according to how much they feel they contribute to the world around them, how much do they contribute to the world around them? Because I don't know. And the, the week that I was having this conversation with myself, David Cameron, who was Prime Minister of Great Britain at that point, told us on Monday that we should admire and like and be grateful to China because it was going to save our nuclear industry. And on Friday, he told us that we should fear and despise China because it was a serial abuser of human rights. And I thought, I'm confused. And this is supposed to be my job. You know, we must be all feeling pretty confused. So I thought, I'm going to measure it. I'm going to take every country on Earth and give them a balance sheet and try and figure out how much do they do for themselves and how much do they do for everybody else, and we'll see which ones come out on top.
1: I don't want to rush ahead with this, Simon, but I think we should let the listeners hear quite early on in our conversation which countries are perceived to be good. And then let's unpick it a little bit and talk about what other countries can do. You've mentioned China, you've mentioned Russia already, which I really am am, am fascinated to talk to to you about. Um, So what's the big surprise? Which countries are coming out um, well in the good index? Which countries are perceived to be doing good for the rest of the world?
2: Well, the good country index doesn't measure perceptions, it measures reality. So that's the first thing to say. The other index, the Nation Brands Index, which I mentioned before, that measures what people think. So one measures what people perceive and the other one measures what they actually contribute, which is not an easy thing to measure. And it's it's only a snapshot. It's not a complete account of because countries are big, complicated things. But basically, um, the, the, the big news is that the countries that people perceive contribute most to the world aren't necessarily the ones that really do. However, on the whole, they've got it more or less right. Okay, so there are exceptions. I mean, for example, everybody thinks that Canada is incredibly green and contributes to the environment. Um, They're wrong. But the reason why they think that is because they know it's not America and America is not terribly green. <laughs> so so Canada is really not in control of its image at all. It's just the opposite of what America is at any given moment. But but broadly speaking, uh, Julie, to answer your question, on the whole, people seem to know they get it right somehow. So at the top of the good country index, you've got, surprise, surprise, a bunch of, of Nordic countries. So the the Scandinavian countries and the Nordic countries on the whole are the ones who do the best job of balancing their domestic and their international responsibilities. So they treat their own people pretty well, and they treat their own environment pretty carefully, but without harming other people in other countries and without harming the global environment. There are exceptions, of course. I mean, Norway uh, exports... Um, um, huge amounts of, of of oil every year, which are burnt in other countries and damages the environment in those countries. But as I say, countries are complicated things.
1: Ireland comes quite high up on the uh, on the grid as well, doesn't it? Being born in Ireland, yeah. I'm quite happy.
2: Well, uh, the, I'm popular <laughs> in Ireland for that for that reason. In the in the first edition uh, in two thousand and fourteen, when I first launched the index, I was able to announce that Ireland. Relative to the size of its economy. So it's always, it's always relative to the size of your country. Otherwise, it wouldn't be fair on the smaller countries. But per dollar of GDP or per euro of GDP, Ireland does more good outside its borders than any other country on Earth or did in 2014 when I, when I measured it. And it always does pretty well. So, so that's really interesting because it's certainly not the richest or the most powerful country, but it's the best friend to the international neighbourhood. This year, it's Sweden.
1: So the big question is, how do we make countries be gooder? So how do we get China and Russia, for example, to to be kinder, better, more outward facing countries? Can we?
2: We can, and and uh, and that's what I spend my life doing. So there are two ways of doing it basically the first way is to is, is what i do every day of my life which is to go to them and show them the numbers and say i'm not asking you to be good because you'll go to heaven or because i'm telling you so i'm asking you to, i'm telling you that it makes more sense for you to be good because it will improve your image everybody will like you and if they like you they'll buy more of your stuff and they'll hire more of your people and then invest more in your economy and that's a straightforward argument so I never spoke to Donald Trump in person, but if I had, I would have said to him, America first is not in your interest because it's putting people off America. And that I can prove. And that will in time translate directly into less trade, less foreign investment, less tourism and so on and so forth. When Joe Biden comes along uh, and says what he says, um, then we're back to business as usual. People like and trust America. They feel glad that it's there. Not everybody, but most people. And then they go back to uh engaging and trading with America and America's economy continues to grow. So that's the first part. And then the other part is about us as individuals. We have to accept that the politicians we get are, to some extent, the politicians we deserve. And the societies that we live in are, to some extent, the societies that we've asked for. And so I think that it's very much a, all about education. Every single challenge On the planet today, whether it's climate change or migration or pandemics, they all have one thing in common, and that is they're caused by the behaviour of people. And the behaviour of people is caused by the way that people were brought up either at school or at home or a mixture of the two. Therefore, if you want to change the world, you have to change humanity. And if you want to change humanity, you have to do it through education. So what I'm spending most of my time on at the moment is an ambitious little project called The Good Generation, which is to try to create an entire global generation of kids who run towards the global challenges instead of running away from them, which is frankly what our generations have done. And all the signs are that that's what they want. They're basically crying out and saying, look, we care about climate change. Teach us. Because, you know, the problem is at the moment that you look at somebody like Greta Thunberg, and it's very, very obvious. You know, the Swedish um, uh, climate protester, it's very obvious what the imbalance is here. She and her cohort have got exactly the right attitude, but they just don't have the knowledge or the skills or the power to do anything about it yet. We adults, on the other hand, we've got the knowledge and the skills of the power, we sure as hell don't have the right attitude. So somehow or other, we've got to get together and make that happen. And it's through education.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, well, going back a little bit, obviously, you have to collect an yeah. awful lot of data. For, for these things, how, how do you determine which sets of data you're going to use? And, you know, are there specific ones that, you know, that are always really, really important?
2: Well, with the good on. country index, it's difficult, Giles, because the, all of the things that I would really like to measure um, about how much good countries do, well, a lot of those things just aren't measurable. Or they aren't measured. Mm -hmm. And because I don't have um, a great big foundation that can go out and do original research in 160 countries, I have to rely on the data that's already collected, mostly by the United Nations system. And that's good data. It's the best data there is because pretty much only the UN has the resources to do that, to measure accurately what pretty much every country on earth is doing every year. So I rely on their data an awful lot. I would love to know, for example, if I'm measuring each country's Um, cultural contribution to the rest of the world. I would love to have data on uh, how many of their bands go touring internationally because that's a direct contribution to global culture. That's sharing your culture Mm. with other countries and that's the right thing to do. It makes a happier world, a better world, a more productive and more fruitful world because we don't inhabit little separate islands anymore. We're all connected and we need to connect more than our problems. We also need to connect our solutions. So the pandemic has done an incredible job of connecting itself globally. It's a truly globalised problem. It's the best example of globalisation you could possibly find. But why is it that our solutions aren't so well globalised? Or to put it another way we have the vaccine for the, for the pandemic now, but where's the vaccine for climate change? Where's the vaccine for migration? Where's the vaccine mm. for poverty and inequality and conflict and human rights abuses and water shortages and species loss and habitat loss and landmines and small, small arms proliferation and so, and so on and so on and so on and so on. Well, the answer is we know what the vaccine is for those, as I was saying just a moment ago, it's called education. It's just not very well distributed, just like the vaccine uh, for 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 the pandemic. So to try and answer your question, I use the best data that's available, but it's nowhere near enough data to give a really, really, really good answer. Having said that, I don't think that means that the survey is useless, far from it, because the main purpose of the survey is to try to encourage people to ask different questions about countries. Instead of constantly asking how well is this country doing, Which is what all the existing research basically does. At least now people are arguing about how much this country is doing. And I think that that's the question for the 21st century. What, what, what's our, you know, any country should be asking itself. And this is what I always ask of, of those presidents and prime ministers. What is your gift to the world? Why do you, why do you deserve to exist? If, if the, if the hand of God should accidentally slip on the celestial keyboard at 3 a.m. and delete your country, who would miss it and why? You know, why do you deserve to exist? And I think that's the question that countries have to answer. It's not, it can't be just to look after your own people. It has to be something to do with looking after the planet and humanity.
1: You talk quite a lot. I've watched um, some of your TED Talks, which millions of people have watched, and they're fascinating. I recommend that people, uh, re- that people uh, do uh, tune into those. You say something like, uh, politicians have minds that microscope and they don't mm. telescope. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are all looking uh, inwards. There's another phrase that you like, which I'd like you to flesh out for me. Cultural psychopaths. Politicians are cultural <laughs> psychopaths.
2: Yeah, well, we're, we're, to a to, to degree, most of us are cultural psychopaths. It's not a very serious case. And, And of course, I shouldn't joke about psychopathy, which is a very serious illness, but it's a very rare one, thank heavens. Um, And one of the characteristics of psychopathy is that the people who suffer from it um, find it difficult or impossible to believe that other human beings are really human beings that they actually have a rich inner life and emotions. And that's why psychopaths are actually quite lonely, because they think they're the only living being there is. And everybody else, they're just cardboard cutouts. And so there's a reason I use that, that metaphor, if you like, because to a certain extent, but in a much, much, much milder form, many of us suffer the same thing when it comes to foreigners. The people who come from other cultures and who eat differently or pray differently or dress differently or behave differently they're somehow less human than we are. They're kind of cardboard cutouts. And that's why so many people talk about compassion fatigue. You know, this idea that you, you know, you watch the starving millions on the other side of the world. And after a bit, you just can't feel for them anymore. This is rubbish. There's no such thing as compassion fatigue. You're either compassionate or you're not. And I think that Mm. Many of us, just because of the way that we're brought up, the way that society's run, we're trained to be less compassionate about people who are different from ourselves. And we can get over that. It's not, it's not a serious mental illness. It's a, little, it's a cold that we can be cured of. But the cure, once again, is education. One of the things that I've always, always, always recommended to governments is that they see, to, see if they can find a way of including anthropology in the educational syllabus, good and early, about six right? Anthropology is a great subject for six-year-olds. They soak it up like a sponge. And I know this because I tried it on my own children and it really worked with them. In fact, I slightly exceeded the dose. So they're they're much much more (laughs) culturally tolerant than I am and are constantly telling me off about it. But the reality of the matter is that if you teach children to become experts in the science of cultural difference, that makes it impossible for them to grow up as racists because it basically deprives the ignorance of oxygen. And if you take a pride in knowing about stuff, then you can't behave like an idiot in that area because it's too important to you to get it right. And I'm, I'm, I feel very unhappy about... Um, political correctness in this field. Because what political correctness does is it teaches you to regard cultural differences as if they were disabilities. Better not to talk about it. Don't mention the fact that somebody's got a different colour face, or they speak with an accent, or they come from a different culture, because you might offend them. What kind of stupid idea is that? Why should anybody be offended about who they are? Actually, curiosity is much more natural and we should stimulate that curiosity and turn it into expertise. And if we turn it into expertise and teach every child on Earth basic cultural anthropology at the age of six, we will, I'm confident, virtually eliminate racism and prejudice because it comes from ignorance.
0: Yeah, that's I mean, yeah, I mean, I I totally agree with you. I think, you know, those those things we're sorely lacking. Yeah, it's
2: all about passing exams,
0: isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's about numbers and data, which I guess. Well, data has its role, like. doesn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you want um, people to take away from the index? I mean, if that, I mean, it's a quite yeah, a large yeah. question to ask you, but well, you know. well,
2: I, the 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 main the first thing is that is the. Um, the thing I said a, said a minute ago, which is to basically start thinking about countries in an ever so slightly different way. So instead of basically constantly saying how well are we doing, how well are they doing, who's winning the race, because life on Earth is not a sprint to the finish. You know, I'm sorry, Donald, but America first doesn't work because we all inhabit the same planet. We're all in the same boat. And the fact that you come first means that everybody else has to come last. And if they come last, then there's no world for you to operate in. It just, you know, life on Earth is a team sport and we have to operate as a team. It's actually a nuisance that aliens don't apparently exist, or at least they haven't found us yet, because the presence of an alien enemy would be the only thing that would unite us really effectively, which is why the most cosmopolitan people on the planet are the people who've just stepped out of the cinema blinking in the afternoon sunlight after seeing Independence Day. Because that makes you human. You're rooting for the humans against the invader. Now we have an invader. It's it's called SARS-CoV-19, right? And that's uniting us like nothing else on Earth. The good thing, the one good thing perhaps about the pandemic is that every single day, all of us have the experience of looking at the news on the telly or on our phone and seeing billions of people, everybody in the world suffering just like us. And uncertain and, and, and scared of the future just like us. And that daily reminder that we're all basically the same, even though we're so gloriously different. That's the most valuable lesson that any of us could have learned. And I hope we don't forget it. The other thing, by the way, that the pandemic has taught us is that we have no, we humans have no special dispensation to survive. We could be wiped out. And we've come face to face with that realisation. And that's so, so valuable. It teaches us humility. And part of the reason why before the pandemic, it was so difficult to get people to focus on climate change was because people are like teenagers. They think they're immortal. And we just thought, yeah, the scientists will fix it. You know, somehow or other, it's going to, it'll be fine. Um, And I don't want to keep talking about Donald Trump, but he was very clever at um, reinforcing people's sense that, yeah, it'll be fine. It'll just go away like magic. And the fact that it hasn't and the fact that it won't is so, so, so valuable because it's taught us a, a little bit of humility. Giles, I'm sorry, I've forgotten even what your question was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, awkward.
0: <laughs> oh, no, no, it was, it was what, yeah, what does the index
2: yeah, yeah, do yeah, yeah, for yeah.
0: people? Well, I mean, we know how yeah. it affects so, people. So yeah. it's
2: basically that it, it, it's, it's a, it teaches us a new way of looking at countries, not as competitors in a 100 meter sprint but as team players who need to work together. And um, it's terrible really at the moment how um, globalisation has got itself a bad name Um, because we seem Mm. to be forgetting that there are some incredibly good things about globalisation as well as some incredibly bad things. Um, Of course, globalisation has been permitted by our politicians with criminal neglect, um, to to move forward too quickly and um, and and carelessly, so it's created an enormous amount of uh, environmental pollution, an enormous amount of inequity, an enormous amount of injustice. But it's still necessary. Um, globalization is the story of the human species. It's who we are. Ever since we first walked out of the Great Rift Valley in Africa, all of those tens of thousands of years ago, the story of humanity has been a story of us leaving our single tribe, facing a single set of problems and trying to get back together again. And, and now thousands of years later, we've actually succeeded. We are now one community yet again, facing a single set of problems, which, by the way, we've created ourselves this time. And that's something to be celebrated, mm-hmm. because that's who we are. We globalise. We want to be back in touch again. And we've almost succeeded through technology and travel and all the rest of it. So to, to th- try and throw that out and to say, we want no more globalisation, every country for itself, it's really, really dangerous. So what we need to do, and this is what the index tries to show us, is that we are all connected. Everything that happens in any country can affect other countries. If you're elected to be the president Of uh, Sao Tome and Príncipe, a tiny little island state off the coast of Africa, which most people outside the region have never even heard of. Still, you are the president of one of the 200 odd countries on Earth, and you join the team that runs the planet, whether you like it or not. And so we're all connected in this modern age, and we all have to be um, very sensitive to that fact. There are no winners and losers. And the Good Country Index tries to start the process of helping us to understand that. Um, and to, to help us to think about a better, more caring, more responsible form of globalisation that we can all subscribe to from now on. The, the, one, one more thing I would say about that before I stop this little rant is um, the most dangerous idea on the planet at the moment is the idea that humanity is two different species. And one are called globalists and the other are called localists. Um, or nationalists and internationalists, or conservatives and, and liberals, or whatever you want to call it, and that we should spend all our waking hours screaming hate at each other on the internet. This is the most dangerous idea on the planet because it makes fools of all of us. That If you think of yourself as a globalist, as I do, I I worry all the time about the global problems. It doesn't mean I'm not also a localist. It doesn't mean I can't also worry about the little village that I live in. So that localist who you think you ought to hate, that's just you on a different day. We're all both of those things. And to split us down the middle doesn't make us psychopaths, it makes us schizophrenics. We're all the same people. But on different days, we have different emphases. With different upbringings, we have different outlooks. We are one. And we should resist this temptation to split us into different tribes because, as I say, it makes fools of all of us.
1: Simon, you've been doing this now for more than 20 years. You've worked with countless presidents and prime ministers from more than 50 50 countries, 54 countries, I think was the last thing that I read. Your views must have changed over the years. Is there, are, are there some things that you remember vehemently believing in or, or thinking when you were a younger man setting out on this, on this course that you've really changed your mind about now, having had this exposure to so many countries and so many, um, so many minds?
2: Honestly, it would be easier to do it the other way around, Julia, and to just say what are the things that I have, haven't changed my mind about because it's really only a handful um I mean, those fundamental beliefs about the fact that, you know, we're one species inhabiting one planet and that's a bloody brilliant thing and we should get down and enjoy it. That's the one thing that's never changed. Almost everything else has, because I mean, I've been really lucky doing the job I do. My terrible secret is that I have learned far more than I teach. Um, and just having this extraordinary opportunity to work close up with the governments of so many different countries, I've ended up learning so many different subjects. And so it's not so much me changing my ideas, but starting off knowing absolutely nothing. (laughs) And gradually over the years, um, learning a thing or two, but really not much. Um, academics don't like me very much because I do constantly change my mind about things. And if you're an academic, <clears throat> you're not supposed to do that. That's bad form. You know, you have a position and you bloody well stick to it. And I find that I, I have enormous respect for people with opinions. Everybody these days have, seems to have opinions about everything. I, do, I think I have less and less opinions as time goes on. The older I get, the harder I find it to have a fixed opinion about anything. Because if you're really paying attention and you're really listening, you begin to realize that every single topic is a dilemma and there are two sides to every argument. And once you start thinking about it, you realize that the person you're arguing with has a point. And actually, maybe you shouldn't have such strong opinions. Maybe you should just listen. And so the one good thing that's happened to me over the years is that I have fewer opinions these days. And as a result, um, although it may not sound like it right now, I listen a lot more and talk a lot less.
1: I've got a question, I think, on behalf of my mum now. She's obsessed with Putin. She's obsessed with Russia. She's constantly reading uh, about about its history. You're in a room with Putin. Mm. What do you say to him? How do you change his behaviour?
2: Well... My book, I decided to write it as a kind of um, comico-tragical adventure story rather than a textbook about globalization, because I knew that more people would read it. <laughs> and so, one of the episodes in this book is the night I had dinner with Vladimir Putin, um, and I did. I had dinner with Vladimir Putin uh, in his uh, in his country home, and we had um, a fascinating conversation, and um, we were talking about conservatism and liberalism. And um, I said to him, um, it's interesting. Uh, I did some research to find out how many conservatives there are in the world and how many liberals. And I discovered to my surprise that about 85% of the world's population is basically what you would call conservative. Um, And the liberals are a tiny, tiny minority. So their influence is extraordinary. And Vladimir Vladimirovich didn't look in the slightest bit surprised by that. And he said, yeah, The Americans are welcome to the liberals. They're a tiny, tiny minority. My views and the views of most Russians are the views of the majority of the people on the planet. And we had a really, really interesting conversation about that. And um, I ended up realizing basically that his viewpoint is that conservative views, being a little bit afraid of the future and much more attached to the past, is actually it makes good evolutionary sense if you think about it, because what you did in the past by definition didn't kill you. And so in times of uncertainty, the best thing to do is to stick to what you've done in the past because it didn't kill you. And what you do in the future might kill you. I think it's a shame because I think it's better to be excited about the future and to be a little bit daring and a little bit courageous. But if you're short of money and you're short of food, who's going to be daring and courageous? And by the same token, you trust the people you know more than the people you don't know, because those are the people you've always lived with and they haven't killed you. So I have an enormous amount of sympathy for conservative viewpoints. And I'm very, very interested in the idea of finding ways of mingling those. That wasn't going to happen during dinner with Vladimir um, because he's a hardline conservative, and he believes that that is the religion, and you don't mix it with liberalism because that destroys it. And that was basically where we ended up disagreeing with each other. I feel that the two can work together, but he said basically you only think that because you're a liberal.
1: Well, you got away from the dinner, and and uh, you're still here, so <laughs> the conversation went went pretty well. <laughs> Nodshot
2: was not on the menu. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was
0: going to ask you something. There, there, there seems to be, um, and I think this is sort of perpetuated a little bit on social media, a very big gap between what our policymakers do and what we want as as, as citizens. Do you think there is a way we can all influence our policymakers more? Yeah,
2: I think we. Um, I think we have to. I think we have to earn the right to do that. Um, there are huge things wrong with our political system. It seems to be falling apart at the moment. And part of the reason, I think, is because we've, we've basically got the wrong people running our countries. Um, there's something about the system that selects and incentivizes people to run countries, which is just wrong. I think part of the problem, oddly, is that we don't pay them enough. Um, we have this idea in the UK, and it's common to many other countries, that um, if you pay politicians too much, then that corrupts them. But I think that there's an equal problem if you don't pay them enough, because then you don't get people who just want to make money, which is a fairly common and in some ways fairly innocent desire. You end up with people who want power, because the only reason you'd ever want to be a politician if it's relatively poorly paid is because you want power. And having a country run by people who want power is a recipe for disaster. But the other thing is, I just cannot understand why uh, the people who make the most important decisions in society about how we run our country... Don't need to be qualified to do it. I mean, it's simply the only job you couldn't wouldn't conceive of letting somebody design a a, a vaccine um, if they didn't have some qualifications in biology and chemistry, right? And yet we let people make decisions about the vaccine, important policy decisions, with absolutely no regard to how much they know about politics. And in fact, even if the man or the woman who is foreign minister on the day that they're elected does know something about international relations and politics chances are they're going to have a cabinet reshuffle on day three and they'll be put in charge of the economy despite the fact that they can't they don't know their seven times table so so this is bonkers and one of the things that um, I think we should start figuring out is how we can actually ensure that the people who run our countries are qualified to do so that they pass a basic character test so that we not we know that they're not ignorant or stupid or maniacs, and that they pass some basic competency tests so that they know a bit about how to run a country, that they're not just clever at saying the things that get people angry and therefore get them elected. Um, so that would be a starting point.
1: I can I can just interrupting you. Here's your next book, Simon. Yeah, it's the it's the uh, it's the O level or the A level uh, book for do you do you know, do you have what it takes to run a country?
2: Right, right. But then the, uh, the well maybe maybe you're right. The, then the next question is Jarz's question, which is what can we then as citizens do to be because it's a, you know it's a tango. You've got the people who make the policies, and you've got the people who have to um, cope with the consequences of that. So if you look. Look at something like Brexit. Brexit was, was a bit of a, of a, of a, a muddle, um, partly because it's what we call direct democracy. It's a referendum. It's where people make the policies rather than the politicians. And the simple fact of the matter is that you have to learn how to do that. And we don't do direct democracy in this country. We've had a barely a handful of referendums in the last century. You look at countries that do a lot of direct democracy, have a lot of referendums, like Switzerland, for example. It's in their culture to do it, to take it really seriously. So whenever there's a referendum in Switzerland, people go to night school for six months before the vote to make sure they really, really understand the issues. That's the way you need to be if you're going to participate in the political process. So the things that are wrong with our political system are one, the kind of people who end up running the country. Two, the, um, the fact that there's, uh, the citizens are just not involved. Um, that what we do is, um, You go back to the Middle Ages. The relationship between people and the city state that they lived in was a very healthy one. They were participating in every way and in every day. They, in in some cases, if they didn't have enough money to pay their taxes, they could make up for that by working for the community. In our in our modern society, community work is is a punishment. What kind of a distorted idea is that? It should be a privilege to work for the community. It should be a, a way that you work with the community if you can't pay taxes. But instead, it's a punishment. What, what does that signify? What does that convey? It's all all upside down. And the relationship between um, the citizens and the government today is more like a relationship of prostitution. Not wishing to offend any prostitutes, but it's a transactional um, uh, relationship. We just throw a handful of money at our politicians and we say, "Sort it. I don't want to know." And you'll only hear from me if you mess up. And then I'll and then I'll ring customer service and I'll complain. That's not a healthy relationship between citizens and society. We should be down there working, helping make the policies. There's a, there's a wonderful movement in the, in the UK called the Alternative UK, which is based on the Danish Alternative Party, which is all based around this idea of citizens participating actively in the formation of policy. And it takes some effort and it takes some energy, but it's such good fun. Once you've experienced it, you never want to go back. Um, And I really, really strongly recommend that people take a look at that and ask themselves, wouldn't that be a better and also more um, rewarding way of being a citizen in society, that we're actually part of the decision making process, we're part of policy making, and then we don't have the right to blame everything on the politicians, because it's also our fault if things go wrong
1: fascinating i'd vote for you simon can't we get you uh can't we get you into number 10 oh julia
2: i I could not possibly be a politician i mean having spent my life working with politicians the one thing i know for sure is that i could not do that job i have so much respect for people who want to i'm far too thin-skinned anyway i just get so upset if people criticize me and you need to be you need to have the skin of a rhinoceros to be a politician
0: now obviously the podcast is a little bit positive so it'd be nice to uh, finish off the talk by talking about some some of the positive outcomes you know uh, have there been moments where you've been able to talk to people in countries and or, or have people uh, you know seen your book or, or read your ideas and adopted some 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 better ways of working to to improve you know the outcomes of yeah businesses? absolutely
2: and and um i don't know i mean maybe this is a bit of a selfish way of looking at it but for me the most optimistic outcome of everything i've done over the last 20 years is that having worked with all of these governments um, all of these years and seen the best and the worst of them, the end result is that I'm much more optimistic now than I was back in the 1990s. Um, Everything that I see happening at the moment makes me feel positive. And it's mainly largely because going back to this this theme of mine, which is everything for me at the moment, which is about uh, education, Every contact I have with the younger generations just makes me feel optimistic, makes me feel that I know this is an odd thing to say, but we are going in the right direction. And a lot of the nasty stuff that we see flourishing at the moment, well, that's what happens to a tree when it's dying. It has an efflorescence. It produces a mass of buds and flowers and leaves in the last uh, year or two of its life because it knows it's dying. And I think a lot of these old nationalistic, inward looking, backward looking, um, viewpoints, they know they're dying because they so know it's a, last,
1: it's a last hurrah.
2: It's the last hurrah. And, um, and I think that we're moving towards, um, a, a much better age. I'll tell you a funny thing. I mentioned, um, this survey I do called the Nation Brands Index, which measures the images of countries. And one of the things that I've found is if you, if you plot on a, on a graph, The images of every single country I've ever measured, ever since I first started doing it, every year since 2005, they all move upwards. Now, what does that mean? It means that everybody in the world, on average, likes all other countries better every year than they did before. That's, that's, it's quite difficult to get your head around that. But despite everything everybody says about the rise of, 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 um, Aggressive nationalism and all the rest of it, and people turning inwards. The data doesn't lie. We, all of us, like other countries, all other countries, more every year than we did the year before. And that's the good side of globalisation. That shows, particularly with younger generations coming in, brought up on the internet, feeling that they're part of an international community, feeling that they're more citizens of the world, more human beings first, and citizens of their own nation, second or third or 17th or whatever it is. That's progress. And that's why I think that we're going to be okay. Um, Humanity has a fine tradition of only realising it's about to fall off a cliff um, one or two steps before it does so. Um, So we have to have faith. It's a little bit scary because the trouble with climate change is that there's a lot of lag in it. And in some respects, we are already too late. But that doesn't mean that we should stop trying. We will suffer climate change. We are suffering climate change, but we can still do so much to put off the worst of it um, if we get together. And if we get the, those educational vaccines distributed, we need to keep teach kids in every single country all over the world how to behave in a way that respects the planet and other people as much as yourself and your own place.
1: Simon Anholt. That is a beautifully positive way to end a little bit of positive podcast uh, this week. Uh, optimism, and you've you've been you've been there living it for twenty odd years with uh, with leaders of countries around the world, and to hear you say that you are you have a positive outlook and uh, that we have a, a brighter future ahead of us, I think that's about as good as it can get. <laughs>
0: it's lovely, yeah. Thank you, and people can get your book, The Good Country Equation how we can repair the world in one generation at all.
2: Book yeah, cards. anywhere you want. I mean, on Amazon. And if you don't like Amazon, it's on the Guardian bookstore and, um, and so forth.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, I, I highly recommend it. It's a fascinating read. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Simon. It's Thanks, great, great to talk you. to you today.
1: I want to have a very, very long dinner, possibly with some red wine with Simon to hear all of his tales.
0: And Vladimir, do you want him to be there as well?
1: No, I do not want that. I'd like to live beyond the dinner. Thank you very much. He's one of the scariest beings on the planet. <laughs> but fascinating to sit down with him. I mean, you would do it, yeah. wouldn't you? If you were in Simon's position, of course you would.
0: Incredible to sit down with these kind of leaders and, and have their ear and, and sort of see how they tick and find out what their views on the world are. It's very interesting. I guess it all adds to his, his work and his body of work. It's um, incredible.
1: What do you think is the difference between kind and good? Is there a difference? I don't
0: know if there is a difference personally, but I'd be, you know, I'm happy to discuss it.
1: So, so, so kind, kindness, let's look it up. So kindness is, kindness is, is the quality of being generous, helpful and caring about other people. Or an act that shows this quality. And before we started talking to Simon, I just, I, um, I wanted to look up good. <laughs> so it says the state or quality of being good, moral excellence, virtue, a kindly feeling.
2: Mm. So They
1: are it, sort of good,
0: intertwined, aren't they? To a
1: certain they extent. are intertwined. But is it, if you're, you can, you can be a bad person and occasionally be kind. Can you? Or is that just not? You're just then a bad person. But can you be a can you be a good person and not always be good or not? Well, I suppose you
0: can be you can be good. You can be naturally a good person. I guess you can be a bad person and have moments of kindness or 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 acts of. I guess is it is it about a state of being and an action? Is kindness Mm. an action as opposed to being being good?
1: Yeah. Yes, being. I think that's a good way of describing it. So I describe you as. I think you are good. You happen to be kind as well. I think you are good, and I think that you're right. It is. It's. A, it's a state.
0: Well, likewise, st- Julia, and that's very nice of oh. you to say. Um, but yes, I think good is is yeah, it's a state, and the kindness is the
1: action. Either way, it's they're both positives, aren't they? Moral excellence, virtue. Kindly feelings, everything that we like to emit on this podcast.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the one of the big takeaways, and I think I said at the top, uh, was that idea that the, so the countries that were the most good, who were high up the index, are the ones who do the most for others. And I think that's true of humans in general. If you put out goodness and kindness, you you, you get those feelings back, and you get those things back. They come back at you. So I think that's a big takeaway. I think, from this, is that, you know, you, you put kindness and goodness out into the world, then you'll receive it tenfold.
1: And I think um, everybody will be suitably surprised that Ireland uh, came out came out very close to the top.
0: Yeah. Well, actually, I wasn't that surprised, actually.
1: But it's only little. I know, Isn't, it the... Isn't it great? Isn't it great? I mean, I love it. I was born in Ireland. I think it's a brilliant place. But I suppose I'm surprised by the impact mm. that uh, that it's had.
0: Well, that's the thing. Actually, I, I was, I thought, you know, I always think that the Scandinavian countries are, uh, and they and they, they were quite high up as well. Yeah, they and, were very and, high. Yeah, up. and um, I always feel that they have uh, a good outlook on things generally. But um, yeah, I don't think I was necessarily that surprised by Ireland. I think they seem like a good bunch.
1: They are, to be sure, to be sure. <laughs> I can say that because I was born in Dublin. I have an Irish passport, so there you go. Well done. Thank you. So that makes
0: you automatically good.
1: <laughs> Not sure it does. It means if in, in, so, in, in case somebody's going to go, you can't say to be sure. To be sure, I can because yeah. I'm technically Irish, so I'm allowed to. I could bench my Greek roots now as well. I went to school <laughs> in Sheffield. And, uh, yeah, I'm just using it as a as a complete safety blanket for. Uh, <laughs> I think that's fair enough. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> well, Julia, thank you. another wonderful episode it was really insightful i mean i learned so much on this podcast
1: yeah me too it was it was a really it's yeah a fascinating one simon's great we'll have to have him back
0: i'm sure he'll do another book i'm sure he will as well but do do grab a copy of the good country equation it's um fascinating
1: and thank you for listening and don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and to subscribe and um yeah have a positive happy uplifting day night wherever you are with us just enjoy take care